Hello, everyone. This is Money Mentality, and I'm your host, Thomas Dapp. The date today is June 2nd. Uh, so what I'm going to talk about today is the update of the progression of the coronavirus and the progression of the research that's being done on the coronavirus, and especially in terms of uh, treatments and vaccines and how those have been doing. Uh, but before I get into that, uh, let's just go ahead and look at how the stock market has been doing. Uh, so last week, May 25th through 29th, the S&P 500 went up 3%. So it continues to go up despite all the civil discourse and the coronavirus problems in the country. And the global Dow went up 4%, 4.15% last week. Uh, so globally, the market is also continuing to go up. And then through today, Tuesday, uh, the S&P 500 continued to rise along with the global Dow rising as well. And then so in May, the S&P 500 actually posted a positive gain of 4.5% and the global Dow posted a positive gain of 3.3%. So we continue to see this upward trend in the market despite all these events going on. Uh, and so that's what we're examining, and it's something that we'll have to continue to follow and continue the progression of that. And then so looking at our main topic of today, uh, let's see where the coronavirus stands right now in terms of the numbers. Uh, so globally, there are almost 6.3 million confirmed cases. There are over 375,000 confirmed global deaths. In the U.S., there are more than 1.8 million confirmed cases, and there have been over 105,000 confirmed deaths in the U.S. So what we're seeing is that the number of new infections globally are still rising, especially in South America, and the countries that have seen the most acceleration in terms of new cases uh, recently have been Brazil, India, Colombia, Qatar, Egypt, and Afghanistan. Uh, all those countries have really seen an acceleration uh, recently as the number of new cases continues to rise and the infection rate is spreading rapidly in those countries. Um, and so, well, Almost all of the U.S. has begun to reopen. Many states in the U.S. are still continuing to see a rise in new infections. Uh, the U.S. at this current point in time is, for the most part, uh, reopening. Uh, pretty much every state is going through some form of reopening at this point. Uh, some states are doing more of a regional reopening, where not all of the state has reopened. But at this point, every state has plans for reopening in place right now, uh, despite the increase in new infections. And then so the reason that's going on is because I mean, if you look at the initial goal of the whole coronavirus response and the I saw those graphs where it was like flatten the curve and they showed a a big vertical curve where if we don't do anything, then 
the hospitals will be overloaded and all these people will die. And then so we have to put these uh, shelter in place restrictions in place so that we can flatten the curve. And then so initially that was very successful and we were flattening the curve and the hospitals never really got overran in the U.S. Uh, but then we kind of continued to do that and it turned into almost a, not a flatten the curve, but a stop the curve type strategy. And then so since we've seen a big shortage in food and then other shortages across the country, I've had to examine, I've had to examine that strategy. And then we're going back to that original flatten the curve strategy because we've determined that the hospitals at this point are equipped to handle uh, the cases that may be coming their way. And then so, so that's how the coronavirus has been progressing in terms of its infections and deaths. Uh, but let's look at how the treatments and the vaccine research, uh, how that has been doing. And so the thing is, this crisis that we're in with the coronavirus, it's essentially a crisis that it's been determined that it won't really be over until a treatment is discovered or a vaccine is found. Uh, there could be the fortunate case of the virus mutating, but that's kind of relying on luck more than an actual response to it. And so it'd be better to have an actual response and not rely on luck, of course. And so let's look at uh, what's being done in terms of this. And so let's start with the uh, treatments first. And so let's start with antivirals. And then just to provide uh, some history to antivirals, uh, let's look at how they have done historically. And so the thing is, antivirals generally face a lot of challenges. I see most of the breakthroughs in medicine have been related to bacterial research rather than viral research. And so the thing is, uh, the reason for that is because the bacteria, you can actually attack that, that specific bacteria versus viruses. What they do is they essentially hijack the host's biological machinery and reprogram the cells essentially. And so the thing is that you're not attacking the bacteria or an outside thing. You're actually attacking cells that have kind of gone through a mutation process from the virus. So what has to happen is that uh, this treatment has to fix the cells essentially without damaging them too much and causing damage to the host. And so it's kind of a balance of eradicating the virus and then leaving the host intact. And then so what, so as you're hearing all this, you can imagine that antivirals are pretty difficult to develop. And that is correct. So over the course of modern medicine, modern research from 1963 to 2000, 16, there have only been 90 antivirals that have been approved for final use. And then so this is for diseases such as HIV, hepatitis C, herpes, influenza, uh, chicken pox, 
Uh, so out of all these, are, there have been over thousands of antivirals proposed over this timeline, but only 90 have been approved for final use. And then even then, this is kind of overstated because, I mean, if you talk, if you look at that, and I mentioned HIV in there, there have been quite a few antivirals approved for HIV, but HIV is still a problem uh, because the thing is they they help with HIV, but they haven't really cured it. And so a lot of these antivirals haven't really been proven to be real effective at treating a lot of the diseases that they're designed to treat. Uh, but let's look at uh, what has actually been done in terms of the research for these antivirals and coronavirus. And then so far, a lot of it has been uh, existing antivirals and using them as kind of a repurpose strategy to target coronavirus. And then so uh, let's look at the most talked about one. So chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. Uh, so that's been shown to have a little bit of improvement and, but that's mainly in terms of uh, reducing the time to recover from the coronavirus. And then so that's kind of, you'll see that trend in a lot of these antivirals is that they don't really have that full stop cure. And then so in general, at this point, that chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine hasn't determined to be effective enough as a treatment by itself, maybe we'll see a combination uh, usage of it later on. But at this point, uh, it's basically been disregarded. And then another one that got a lot of press coverage uh, last month was remdesivir. And so remdesivir has been pretty similar to chloroquine, but it's shown to be a little bit more effective, but not too much more effective. So in the study that they did, uh, it showed that remdesivir uh, actually reduced the time to recover uh, in patients that recovered from the coronavirus from 15 days to 11 days. So that's a four-day reduction in recovery. But the thing is, you're still undergoing all these coronavirus uh, processes and having to recover from it and undergoing all the symptoms during an 11-day period. So it's not really that full-stop treatment that we've been hoping for. And then so another notable antiviral uh, that's out there is this four-drug combination of uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, uh, ribavirin, and interferon beta-1b. And that's a uh, drug combination that Hong Kong research have uh, researchers have been studying, and uh, so it's had similar results as remdesivir and chloroquine, where it hasn't really decreased the mortality rate all that much, but it has shown uh, that out of patients that did recover, it reduced their recovery time from 12 days to seven days in their in their trial. So I mean that is a a good improvement there. I mean, it's a five-day decrease in recovery time. Uh, but once again, it's not really that full-stop recovery that we've been hoping for. And then there are several other antivirals uh, that have been 
undergoing research. One that's promising is an immunomodulator uh, called, um, definitely gonna pronounce this wrong, <laughs> but it's called tocilizumab or tocilizumab, something along those lines. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what uh, they have shown with this drug is that it has significantly reduced the number of deaths and the need for ventilator support. And they're doing, <coughs> sorry, they're doing this research in China. And uh, there was also a French study that was done on this. And so this is one of the more promising antivirals out there right now. So it could prove to be the best one so far, uh, but it's not that full stop treatment that we would hope for uh, as well. And then so the thing that makes antivirals uh, so hard to develop for coronavirus right now is because like at this point, researchers don't fully understand how the coronavirus even works entirely. And so like what they've examined so far is that uh, people in the coronavirus, they kind of go through those symptoms where they have uh, like a respiratory type infection symptom and then they have pneumonia and then essentially they have these, and then other symptoms ensue and then they progress into was essentially sudden multiple organ failure. And then so at this point, they're not entirely sure why that's happening. Uh, there's been a theory that it's caused by a cytokine storm, which is essentially the immune system overreacting at that point, And then the immune system is causing damage to the host. And so the thing is, there, there's just a lot of unknowns with the coronavirus right now. And then that's also one thing to keep in mind now that I'm talking about that is that there's all these things that are being said about the coronavirus. And then you might see a lot of these people on TV or wherever they're speaking very confidently about it. But the thing is, no one will really know what's happening until it's all over. And then even then, there might still be a lot of questions about how exactly it works. And like we may never get like a full clear picture on the coronavirus. And so that's one thing to be careful of is kind of that over analysis and then just being wary of what a lot of these professionals are claiming because once this is all over, most of them will be proven wrong. And then uh, so continuing on, uh, so then another challenge of antivirals is that how they're administered is they wouldn't be administered until someone is hospitalized. So the thing is, you have to go through all the coronavirus symptoms and everything, and you have to get to the point to where you'd have to be hospitalized. And then at that point, you would get the antivirals. So they would not really affect the community transmission, and it wouldn't uh, prevent that uh, lack of flattening the curve or that steep curve from happening. And then, so that's just a problem to keep in mind with antivirals. And then, uh, so another treatment that's actually been found to be successful uh, to some extent is uh, anticoagulants, so blood thinners. Uh, because one thing that's been shown about the coronavirus is that it's been causing damage to endothelial cells. And then essentially when this happens is that it causes uh, inflammation in blood vessels uh, which then causes accumulated plaque 
uh, to rupture and could cause a heart attack. So that could be one of the reasons for that sudden multiple organ failure. And so the thing is, like, what's essentially happening here is that if they have the lungs in ventilation, the lungs might be fine, but then the body isn't able to exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide in the blood effectively. So the oxygen and carbon dioxide coming into the lungs isn't really able to effectively be transferred to the rest of the, rest of the body. Um, and so what the research on the coagulants or the anticoagulants has actually shown uh, and this is more observational research. They haven't done trials on this yet. Uh, but they've found that in New York City hospitals, uh, where, I mean, a lot of these doctors, what they're doing is they're, and because there's no real clear idea of what to do, they've been trying different things. And so this is one of the things that they've tried, and they found that uh, survival rates for the intubated patients uh, with anticoagulants were actually, uh, it was a 71% survival rate versus patients that got to that intubation level. It was only a 37% survival rate. So that's, that's a pretty good increase for uh, administering anticoagulants. It could be uh, something that helps a lot in terms of survival. So, I mean, this is something that we could see, like what I was talking about with the antivirals earlier, where a lot of them have just been shown to mainly reduce the recovery time. So there could be a combination we're seeing where we see a combination of antivirals and anticoagulants, and, uh, anti where the antivirals help reduce the recovery time and then the anticoagulants actually increase the survival rate. Uh, and so that's something that's promising there. And then uh, another uh, area of treatment that they've been testing is uh, what they call convalescent plasma and then um, monoclonal uh, antibody therapy. So what this is, is this is actually a pretty effective treatment, is it's uh, people that have recovered from coronavirus, they would essentially donate their blood plasma, which has these uh, antibodies that have been able to fight off the coronavirus, uh, they would donate that to people that are uh, fighting coronavirus, and then they would get it injected into their bodies, and then those antibodies uh, actually would help fight the coronavirus a lot. And so the difference between this and a vaccine is that a vaccine essentially stimulates the individual's own immune system to create a response and then create its own antibodies. Uh, what this does, this uh, plasma treatment, is that it doesn't cause the person's system to create their own antibodies, but it does provide these outside antibodies. And then, so the, the limitations of this are that these antibodies can only survive in uh, a different body for so long. They have a, an average half-life of about 30 days. So this could be used as kind of an immune treatment to prevent people from getting coronavirus, uh, but it could also be used as a treatment for people that are undergoing it. And uh, But one limitation too is that 
it's really hard to mass produce this type of treatment, as you can imagine. I mean, there are only so many people that have recovered from coronavirus and that are able to actively uh, contribute their blood plasma. But this could be, I mean, depending on how long the coronavirus situation lasts, this actually could be a, an effective treatment solution later on if none of the other research that's being done on these treatments goes well. And then so shifting gears, uh, let's talk about vaccines. Because essentially a vaccine would be the best case scenario, the best strategy to fight against the coronavirus. And then historically, vaccines have had uh, the highest percentage of success rates compared to uh, treatments for viruses. And uh, so uh, looking at uh, vaccines in general, so the main thing uh, that you have to keep in mind with a vaccine is that it has to be effective and it has to be safe. So the thing is, especially with the number of uh, young people or people that are getting the coronavirus that haven't fully gotten severe symptoms, their main concern would be that it has to be safe. And then obviously it has to be effective. Uh, but then, so one thing that uh, makes vaccines uh, take so long to develop because we see all these timetables for these different companies and some of them like Moderna say that they could come out with a vaccine by the end of this year. And then there are other ones that say that they could come out with a vaccine by the end of next year. So we have all these varying vaccine timetables. And so that has to do with a combination of just the risks that vaccines present. Like for example, one thing that they have to be wary of is that there's this phenomenon that occurs in vaccines called antibody dependent enhancement. And then essentially what that means is that the vaccine creates what you might call a clearance pathway where it essentially hijacks the body's immune system and that it actually enhances the viral infection within the body. So it pretty much breaks down a part of the system that would be able to respond to that type of virus. And so this is why uh, we have to have trials of these vaccines on humans, because sometimes in animals, they won't have this antibody dependent enhancement in animals. They'll be completely fine. They'll have the vaccine and they'll expose them to the disease and then they'll recover from it just fine. But then when the vaccine is uh, given to humans, they have this ADE, this antibody dependent enhancement that actually prevents the vaccine from being effective. And, uh, and then so let's uh, looking at uh, another thing that is challenging for vaccines is that just scaling up production for them is uh, really difficult because a lot of vaccines, I mean, they're not exactly easy to make. All of them involve cultures, like cell cultures developing over a certain period of time. And then so these cell cultures have to develop over a period of time and they have to have them packaged in uh, like the vaccine and injection uh, tool. And it's just a big process where it's hard to produce a lot of vaccines. 
Um, and so looking at uh, the types of vaccines that are being developed, and then once we look at these the types of vaccines, it'll be more clear why all these companies have different timetables. So there are essentially five different types of vaccines that are being developed. And so the first one is what you would call a live but weakened coronavirus, and it would infect cells and then cause them to make viral proteins. So that's the first one. The second one is a killed coronavirus that will get recognized as foreign matter in the blood, and then the body will generate an immune response to it. So the, the difficulty with the killed coronavirus is that the body won't necessarily generate an immune response to it because it's killed and it's not necessarily attacking the cells. Uh, so there have to be uh, like adjuvants. So that's a, a material that will help cause more of an immune response. So they have to do research on, on that and they have to find a way to get the body to generate that proper immune response in the right way. And then so the companies that are working on the vaccine of this strategy are us. Uh, Sinovac and Dynavax are working together on one like that. Those are the most notable uh, companies. And then, so the third type of vaccine is essentially a different virus, which would be like measles or an animal virus. And then it is uh, engineered to include uh, genetic components that code for uh, the SARS-CoV-2 spike proteins, and then it causes the body to then produce them. And then so the companies that are working on this strategy, uh, this type of vaccine are uh, CanSino, Oxford, Johnson & Johnson, and then Merck and uh, Temis. And then the fourth type of vaccine that's being produced are the DNA or RNA type vaccines, where these uh, Essentially, it's DNA or RNA that will be taken up by the cells and then will cause them to make coronavirus proteins. So this is kind of a more new type vaccine, new technology. Uh, but so the companies that are working on this are Moderna, Novio, BioNTech, and Pfizer. And then the fifth type of vaccine is the coronavirus proteins themselves, uh, which are produced industrially and outside cell cultures. And then they are uh, injected into the body and they're recognized as foreign matter in the blood. And the body would have to create a, an immune response to that. And so that would be the proteins rather than the actual virus itself. And then so the companies that are working on this are uh, GlaxoSmithKline and Sanofi together, and then uh, Novavax. Um, and so the thing is, like, so if we look at these five different types of vaccines, so number uh, three, so that uh, where they use the different type of genetic component from a different disease, and number four, the DNA and RNA type virus. So the thing is, those are the ones that have been moving fast that you've heard about. And, the, and why that is, is because those are more of a new type of technology. And it's actually interesting because they haven't really ever approved a vaccine using this technology in either of these cases in developed countries. And the thing is, they're 
like if they do work, they're like lower probability of going through all of the trials successfully. But if they do work, they could get a vaccine out by this fall. And so that's what you're hearing about with Moderna got through their phase one trial last month. And then all these other companies that are doing that type of strategy where they're moving pretty fast, that's because they're doing this new experimental style. And so let's, let's look at what these specific companies are doing. Um, and so the first one I want to talk about is uh, Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline. Um, and so their uh, vaccine is the one where uh, they're producing the coronavirus proteins and then they're introducing it uh, into the body from uh, after it's been like produced into from an outside cell culture. And so the thing is they use uh, technology, what they refer to as the flu block process. And then so this is a very high probability uh, vaccine model. So it has a very high probability of success and it relies on more proven vaccine technology. But the thing is the timetable for this is much slower because if they follow this process, uh, it would end up with testing humans in the second half of this year in 2020. And then the filing for regulatory approval wouldn't really happen until the second half of next year, 2021. So this is a high probability approach. If the other uh, more newer style approaches don't pan out, this is kind of one that we can rely on. But the thing is this one really come through until net, like the second half of next year. So this would be kind of a, a not ideal case scenario. Uh, but and so the, uh, the second major company, or I guess not a company in this case, but it's Oxford University. Uh, they're using uh, an aggressive timetable where they're doing the, that strategy I mentioned where they're essentially using a different disease and then coding it for the SARS-CoV-2 uh, spike proteins. And then so it's allowing the body to generate a, an immune response to the coronavirus without actually having to endure the coronavirus. And then so they're doing a lot of their research on chimpanzees and then with their current process, if it pans out to be successful, uh, they actually claim that they would hope to produce one million doses by this fall. So they would be uh, one of the more bright spots uh, out there. But it's a pretty, pretty low probability process, and there's actually never been a vaccine produced in this manner. Uh, so it is something to keep an eye on, however. And then uh, moving on to the next notable one. So Moderna has been uh, one of the most talked about ones. They actually made it through their phase one trial. And uh, so their vaccine, is its aim is to engineer RNA and DNA to enter human cells, which would then generate virus proteins. And so they had their successful phase one study so far. Uh, but the thing is with the phase one study, it's primarily designed to assess tolerability rather than whether the sufficient levels of antibodies are there, which will provide immunity. And then once they have their phase two trials and then 
phase three trials, then we'll really know if it's effective. And then with their current timeline, if everything goes smoothly, uh, they would have their phase three trials uh, undergone as soon as this summer, which is a, that's a really fast timeline. So that's, that's pretty good. And then, so another company is Sinovac and Dynavax. And uh, they're actually uh, partnering on the development of the inactivated virus vaccine. And so they're more of a, uh, a slower process, but uh, they're, they could actually be, uh, they could be an option there. They haven't really shown too much, but uh, they could be a case there if none of the other ones pan out. And then uh, Johnson & Johnson, uh, with their timetable, uh, they actually aim to begin their phase one trials in September of this year. And then they're saying with uh, emergency use production, they could begin their vaccine as early as spring of 2021. And then there have also been, there have been several other uh, producers out there, like uh, CanSino, I guess, is another notable one, where they're developing the uh, a vector vaccine. And then so far, they've shown that uh, from their trials that patients have shown like a neutralizing antibody response. Uh, but in older patients, the antibody responses were weaker. And then I guess that's a key thing because like the main people at risk are older people. So they, they have to come up with a vaccine that has a good response in older people mainly, as well as in young people. And then uh, among the other vaccine producers like Novavax, BioNTech, and Merck, uh, like they, like nothing has really come out from them as far as news. I guess we just really have to see where that goes. I mean, they're working on their processes and everything, but they haven't made any announcements so far. So that's something we'll have to monitor. And then so so that's pretty much everything as far as the current research that's been done on the vaccines and the treatments. Um, and so we'll, we'll just have to continue to monitor uh, the coronavirus as this progresses. Um, hopefully uh, all the uh, protests and everything uh, won't increase it anymore. Oh, and that was a lot to get through uh, because mainly I was just going over all the research that had been done on the coronavirus since it started. Uh, and so going forward, uh, the plan is to do a coronavirus update at the beginning of each month. So today was the, the June coronavirus uh, update. And so I'll go over any new updates to treatments or vaccines or any research into how the coronavirus functions. And so hopefully we get more good news going forward. Uh, but then, so that's all of our show today. Uh, and thank you for listening. And then enjoy the rest of your week. The content in this presentation is provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. You should consult a tax professional about any tax consequences and a licensed investment professional prior to making any investment decision. No statement within this presentation should be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell a security or provide any investment advice.